I talked to a lot of people that are making more money than they ever have, that are creating fabulous businesses and helping people do things. There's more opportunity than people think. I think there's an easy downward spiral around limiting beliefs. I don't get leads, I won't get opportunities, I don't get opportunities, I don't close. If I don't close, I don't hit my number. If I don't hit my number, I'm gonna get fired. And it's this endless loop. And you know, you can take the you can take the tape out of the head, put a different one in and say, you know, there's unlimited opportunities, unlimited potential. There's a new way of working I haven't figured out yet. And also, what do I want in my life? Is this even worth it? Does it resonate with my why? Welcome to Winning Streaks. I'm your host, Tanvir Mustafa, and every week I get deep into the stories and strategies of experts, champions, business moguls, and industry leaders to find out how you can win the day and win at life. If you're committed to never settling for the status quo and consistently challenging yourself to new heights, then this is the show for you. In return, I commit to bringing you insightful, practical, and no BS conversations that will help you create your next big win. My guest today has spent the last 25 years in enterprise sales across everything from small startups to large companies like Oracle and DocuSign. At DocuSign, he won President's Club every year for six years and even led the entire company in sales for one of them. He was then promoted to lead, create, and run the big deal team responsible for closing the largest and most strategic deals around the globe. He's a two-time CRO and now holds that position as the co-founder of his own company, 100 Handshakes, a relationship mapping platform for B2B sellers. He is genuinely one of the most talented sellers I've ever met, and I'm delighted to announce that this guest is now a certified coach for our Untap Your Sales Potential coaching program. Introducing Mike Fiasconi. Mike, welcome to the show and uh, an official welcome to the team. How's it, how's it feeling so far? Thanks, Tanvir. I am excited to be here. I'm excited to be part of uh, Untap Your Sales Potential. I love sales. I love salespeople. I, I love the community that Ian has built. So I'm just thrilled and honored to be part of it. It's an honor to have you here. And you've been in sales a long time. 25 years is no joke. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, it's actually way longer than that because you, I know, I've, as from what I understand, you started selling his toys at like seven years old to your classmates, <laughs> to your peers. So how did the sales journey start and what was it about sales that really got you into it and, and pursue this as a, as a career path? I'm the youngest of six kids in a blue collar family in the South side of Chicago. And I'm not just the youngest, I'm the youngest by far. There's seven years difference between me and number five. And so I felt like I was out in the streets on my own, like a wild animal making stuff happen. (laughs) One thing I definitely knew is I had an aspiration to um, buy some things, toys, skateboard, whatever. Uh, And, you know, having six kids, blue collar family, you had, I didn't, we didn't have a ton of money to spend on extraneous things, but I thought, Hey, if I could sell something and make some cash, then I can buy whatever I want. And I noticed that a lot of kids at school were coming with these little fingerboard flippy kind of skateboard, little figurines or matchbox car kind of things. And, or these whistles. And I'd say, Hey, where did you get that? And then tell me where they got it. How much did you pay for that? How much? I want one of those. And then I thought, well, maybe I can borrow money, buy a bunch of them in bulk, get a reduced price, sell them. And then from the proceeds, I can buy my own thing. So it was really out of the need and desire for something I wanted in my life. And I saw sales. I didn't know it was sales. It was just, hey, if I could 
buy it and sell it to you at the same price or maybe a slight premium for the uh, convenience of buying it right there. We're, we're in school. That's your target market. I mean, my target market was kids my age. Where are kids my age? You're in my school. And I thought, well, I'm just going to show up to school with a bag of these toys, sell them in the hallways in between class. And it worked out great. I started, and then I started making my own little flip skateboards and, you know, selling those. And then the whistle idea I thought was a great idea. Turns out that backfired a little bit. (laughs) Man, you were doing so much at that age. You're doing, I can't believe you're even thinking of that, of of business like that. At seven years old, you're thinking about product market fit. You're thinking about leverage. You're thinking about, you know, sale price. Like, so you break even or make a profit. Wow. Uh, I thought, well, how can I make money so I can buy what I want? And then where do I need to take that product and who's the market and what is it? So I guess I was doing some product market fit analysis. I didn't understand those words at the time. Uh, When I sold the whistles, then imagine seven-year-olds having whistles at school and would blow them loudly in the classes, in the hallways. And, you know, I got in a little trouble on that one. So you also part of your market fit is to decide what are the ramifications of selling that mark product into the market. Mm, wow. You got a full, full sales experience early, early on. Yeah. I was the youngest person to have a paper route at age nine. And I asked for another route because one wasn't enough. So I did two. I just been kind of hustling, I guess my whole life, worked two jobs in high school, paid my way through college. And I love sales because it just has an unlimited income potential. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the more value you deliver, the more financial gain you also get. And it just seems so great of a model. And you've had a lot of success throughout. Again, I've, we've, we've listed sort of some of your accolades here. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, again, you've, you've had such a long journey that I'm sure there were many mistakes along the way and lessons learned along the way. So through your entire sales journey so far, what have been some of your sort of, what have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made and your biggest lessons learned that you now use to be the seller you are today? I did make a lot of mistakes. I think I was very pushy and I, I thought that activity and persuasion was the name of the game. And I really didn't learn that till much later in my career. It's more about serving the customer and providing value, but for so long, it was about me and what I could do and what I could close and how can I convince somebody. <clears throat> Even when I waited tables in college, I would match my personality based on the table. Meaning I, and I have the ability to kind of morph into different personas and imitate different people. And it's just a knack I have. So when a group of guys would come in and be like, Hey guys, you want some beers? You know, let's get started some chicken wings. The old ladies that come to my table will be like, hello, how are you today? It's lovely weather. I, what can I get for you? Would you like to look at the salad list? You know, I would just match who I was to what I believed would be the most um, convincing or pers- most persuasive personality for my prospect. And it actually, and it worked and I was good at it. And what happened is I lost sense of who I was. And so then I just went through sales through life, morphing as a chameleon to match, to please, to please, ultimately please somebody. 
a people pleaser. And so I guess a lot of the mistakes I made was um, inauthenticity, um, you know, changing who I was. And, and, and then also another big mistake I made was when I sold into the Minneapolis market, Minnesota nice is a saying, and everybody was so nice. And I thought I was going to just close all kinds of business. And I just kept meeting with the same people because they would take my meetings and they're really nice. Oh, Mike, you're a nice guy. Oh, this is a great product. And be like six, nine months later, I got nothing to show for it. I said, hey, where are you on this process? Oh, we bought your product ages. We brought the competitor's product months ago. Yeah, you you know, you have a great product, but we bought the competitor three months ago. Okay. (laughs) Why are you meeting with, well, yeah, you just seem like a nice guy. And I was like, okay, one of the big mistakes I made for an entire year was not asking the tough questions in quotes, being very specific in a nice market, in a market of nice people, being very thoughtful on the probing questions. Hmm. You know, what is your time frame? What do you like about us? What do you not like about our solution? What, how do you feel about the competitive solution? What do you like about them more? I had to learn, I guess, the art of really digging deep, particularly in a market of full of nice people. Was there a catalyst or a time when you realized things started to change? Was there a trigger or something that happened or maybe a big lesson that you might've learned that you finally re- realized that, okay, I gotta, I gotta switch things up and become more authentic. I, I can't tell you that there was this aha moment. Um, but what I can tell you is all wherever I've worked, I made a point to look at the top performers in, in that industry, in that company. Um, and I always shadowed them, asked them questions, And I guess I started to learn not just the process, but who they are as people and how they are thinking through that. And I think through osmosis, I started to understand that this is a a role of service. And I love that mindset shift. Mm -hmm. It, It wasn't a light switch for me. It was a slow dial. It was like a dimmer switch. And as I started to look at this role as a service-oriented role, how can I help them? How can I be of service? It was actually, um, it was so refreshing. It was like freeing. Oh, I don't have to worry about my stuff and my goals and my, I can just be a servant and, and help people. And, uh, and I think that's really just learning from some of the best in my in my organizations and seeing how they did and shadowed them is how I kind of made that, that transition. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the biggest shift in um, how closing big deals happened when um, I was at DocuSign and, and Chris McLean came in who ran sales for enterprise and he came from SAP and he had this just big deal playbook, you know, he'd say, Here's a point of view for Adobe. Here's what it looks like. And here's who we're going to call up. And he had this charging kind of, you know, tone to him. He's like, we're going to do this. This is how it's done. This is the big leagues. I'm like, wow. He brought in a value engineering guy. We never had that. It was, 
So the authenticity I think I had, Chris McLean came in and taught us the structure and the process of landing these monster opportunities and being so a real pro, being a real professional with the craft. And I want to talk about that because you've done Presence Club six times, been number one in all of DocuSign. You led the whole team there. And that, you know, sometimes people can get to Presence Club once, twice. It's really hard to get there as consistently as you have, which means that tells me that you've had a formula. You've had a, you've, you've sweetened it down to a science in terms of how to go out, close, capture and close big deals. If you were to give, you know, our listeners a mini crash course on what that looks like, what would it be? So the first order I ever did at DocuSign was for $100. It was $100 for the entire year. To one guy, I sold him 100 envelopes. And I took his credit card number over the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, what am I doing? How the heck can I make any money at this company? I cannot believe I'm writing this guy's credit card number on a scrap piece of paper in my <laughs> office that I can then phone it into the finance department to process an order for $100. But I knew that planting seeds, if you look at it like a crop, you plant seeds into the most fertile soil. And I, I wanted somebody to use my product within the organization. I didn't care about the dollar value. I cared about the value story. And I'd say that that's absolutely one of the key components of a repeatable success model is, am I planting seeds in the most fertile soil? Or am I just taking the seeds and sowing them blindly and hoping, and let's see which one sprouts. Now, if you're early product market fit, sometimes you got to throw the seeds. But as soon as you know that this is the right, this industry, this persona, um, this competitor of one of our biggest customers, then I'm going to prioritize my time. So territory management, getting somebody to use the value and uh, calculating that value and building a case study. And then that, that's what you sell to the rest of the organization. There's three stages that a company goes through on a big deal. There's three stages. <clears throat> it's the land, the expand, and then the enterprise wide. So there's always a small, a phase one, a phase two, and phase three. My goal is to get phase one going as quickly as possible. So giving the product away or selling at a low price or doing a paid POC or a free POC, as long as there's some sort of commitment, I wanted to get a few sprouts going as quickly as possible. And then the expansion, there's some structure in the relationship. So I wanted to have an IT manager own this as an asset, a procurement manager, and an executive sponsor because we're doing the the sprouts are starting to to turn into trees. And then to do the forest was the executive sponsor at the sea level, who's high enough, powerful enough, cares enough to make this a priority and be proactive. Mm -hmm. So you needed all of those kind of stages. But what I learned was that rather than taking each stage at a time, why don't we try to sell the vision of phase three, even when we're doing a phase one deal? Let's get to the exec sponsor and sell the vision of what a phase three looks like while we're doing that first initial land deal. 
and, and what we found was a reduction of on average, it would take eight years for a land and expand and enterprise wide. It took eight years for a large enterprise account. We cut it down to four and then we cut it down to two. And it was all because of quantifying what enterprise looks like, even when we do those little seed plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a very well thought out playbook and well thought out uh, go to market approach that you all executed over at DocuSign. But still, I feel like there's there's something missing because you, uh, again, you led the team, you consistently were top 5%. Um, and not everybody had that pleasure, despite knowing what the playbook was. What was it do you do you think that you did differently than everybody else? How did you approach your business differently than everybody else while still executing the same tactics and techniques and playbooks? I, I focus on um, the people component probably more than any of my peers. So if I look at an account, I would map out who am I talking to, who do they report to, who do they report to, and I build an org chart. The org chart to me was my secret sauce org chart and a closed plan or a mutual activity plan. Those were the two things I leaned on the hardest. And for some reason, my colleagues didn't really do it very much. I didn't understand it. I did it for myself. I did it for my customer. I'd print it off on a piece of paper. I'd bring that org chart into a meeting and I'd have a pen and I'd say, hey, would you mind taking a look at this? I'm sure I made some mistakes. And they would circle and they'd cross out and they'd rub it. And I always, always got interesting feedback, not only on the reporting structure and the titles, but their roles, their personality, what they care about, what they're concerned about, who they listen to, who do they trust, uh, what outside partners. And so the org chart and the relationship map became my greatest sales asset. And sharing that, not just internally, with my team or my executives, but externally with the customers, they actually gave me really good information. And that allowed me to get higher up in the organization more so than my peers. It also allowed me to get insights much more quickly. And the common comment I would get from my colleagues and coworkers who collaborated with me on these accounts is they would walk away from a meeting shaking their head and saying, how did you get that much information from that customer in that meeting? It's unbelievable, Mike, the way you were able to ask those questions. And I guess I learned this natural way of using curiosity to have those conversations. And the reason I did it is because I prepared. I prepared like crazy, did a lot of research ahead of time with a point of view. And the more knowledge I did, the more trust I think I earned the customer and they're very open also had an attitude of like hey if this is not for you i'm okay with that i just need to know because my you know i've got others i could be working with but i've chosen to work with you mm -hmm. and so i always test everybody who's working with it was testing them to find out what concerns do they have that was another one of my secret most powerful questions that i love to ask hey so great nice meeting you tell me what concerns do you have what concerns do you have about us? What concerns do you have about the funding for this? What concerns about, do you have about you and your role and your job, knowing that you have to report to your boss on this? What concerns do you think he has? Why not? Why just push this off to next year? Why not just push it off? Feels like there's a lot of change here. Why would you want to do it now? Why don't you just use the low price competitor? 
you know, because they're cheaper, why would you pay a premium? I, I mean, I just got really, um, I guess, um, open and <laughs> got it all on the table. So speed to, to hit president's club year over year, you need speed and efficiency. You need to hunt in the right territory in the right patch, but you need to crawl through the org and collect data very efficiently mm. and questions to see that process. So I like, I like that outline speed efficiency, but I know as someone who's spoken to you a few times now that you have another sort of piece of that formula, another secret sauce. And I think it probably occurred when you started learning about how the brain works and your journey of personal transformation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that was a part of your, your secret sauce. Does that sound about right? Yes, absolutely. I'd say I made a conscious decision about maybe 15 years ago because of some hardships I was going through, some difficult times my wife was going through, some health concerns that she was worried about that led us into, you know, natural ways of living, reducing chemicals, understanding that our, our system, which is physical, emotional, spiritual, there's more to us than, you know, just our physical body. And I conceptually understood that, but I became a student to understand the, the systems of our being and the, and the energy and how that energy works and how it can attract or repel and how it influences stress in our life and how it influences our physical symptoms. And so during that journey of reading and going to seminars and watching videos and um, becoming certified in different techniques, I start to understand how the brain works. And where I realized that, you know, we're only aware of two to maybe 5% of our mind that's the neocortex where we formulate our thoughts and where we have a choice. I have a choice on how to move my hand. I have a choice of the words I'm using right now. I'm using the frontal cortex part. 98% of our mind is doing other stuff at the same time. It's subconscious. We're not aware. For example, I don't have to tell my heart to take a beat every second. I don't have to tell my eyes to dilate if I shine a light in it. So the subconscious mind controls trillions of cells in our bodies. It's also where we bury emotions when we don't have the tools to handle it. And, um, and if we don't address that, then it bubbles to the surface. It impacts our life. It impacts our business. Our customers feel it. We could have the biggest smile on our face and ask the best questions, but they leave the room and they're like, ah, I don't know about that guy. Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. I just something about him or that gal or whoever. There's a, there's a real exchange of energy that happens in a conversation more so even in person. And so what I would do with intentionality is before I'd have that conversation, I would just do a quick visualization exercise. I take a deep breath. centered, get grounded and then say, what do I want out of this mean? What do I want to, what do I want them to get out of it? I want to be a servant. I want to provide value. I want them to see the benefits that I see. I want them to feel excited about taking the next step with me. 
I want them to give me access to senior leaders, but most importantly, I, I want to change their lives. What would that look like? I'd see it in my mind. I'd feel it in my body. I'd hear the voice inside my head. And then I'd have prepared an agenda and I'd, I'd let go of expectations. And I'd be curious and say, where does this go? I found by doing that pre-meeting kind of mindset exercise, which takes maybe 30 seconds, got my energetic state at a, at a point that allowed people to open up and share things with me that they wouldn't share. Two people can ask the same question. One person will get a ton of information. One person will get a yes or no kind of minimal response. It's the energy behind the question is what gives people this feeling of safety to share and to be vulnerable and to open. This episode of Winning Streaks is brought to you by Untap Your Sales Potential. Two years ago, I was blindly navigating my role as an account executive at Salesforce. I didn't have any structure or any organization in my approach. And if you would have asked me what my strategy was, I would have told you that I was just throwing as much at the wall as possible and seeing what sticks. This led me to extreme burnout, high levels of anxiety, and frankly, a complete lack of fulfillment from my role as a sales professional. It honestly made me even wonder if I was even cut out to be in sales. That's when I found the Untap Your Sales Potential coaching program. Founded by Ian Koniak, Untap Your Sales Potential is a sales coaching program that teaches the exact frameworks, processes, and strategies that have helped Ian close over $100 million in sales across industry giants such as Rico and Salesforce. With multiple number one finishes and seven-figure years, Ian's expertise is unparalleled. This program will help you access the mindset, habits, and selling skills of the top 1% of tech sales professionals. After I started working with Ian, I ended up finishing number one on my team two years in a row, closed over $3.6 million in sales, and earned my spot at President's Club. Most importantly, it helped me rediscover my purpose and experience true fulfillment. But don't just take my word for it. We've had over 150 students go through this coaching program, with many of them shattering income records, exceeding their quotas, and achieving levels of success they never thought possible. So if you're ready to level up and untap your sales potential, visit untapyoursalespotential.com and book a free strategy call with me, where we'll talk through where you're struggling, where you'd like to improve, and how we can help. Again, that's untapyoursalespotential.com to book your free strategy call today. Now let's get back to the show. Where does that energy come from? How do you build that energy? How does, a, how does some a rep who's struggling with that, like, you know, they're going into meetings, but they're not really having much success, um, or they feel inauthentic. Like, how do you, how do you fix that problem? Um, the variety of different ways. One is it, you have to practice in a safe environment. The inauthenticity usually stems from, um, I can't, I don't feel, remember, and I struggled with this a lot. It's, I, I, I can't be authentic. I'm afraid what they'll think of me. I'm afraid that I won't be accepted. I'm afraid that they won't learn the deal. So you got to work that stuff out with people where you feel comfortable with. Because then that takes that out of it. Hey, let's practice a mock call. I've got a really big, important meeting. Here's when a, what feedback do you have for me? So taking your ego out of the door, uh, just parking it out front and having a practice session with your manager, if that's who you trust, a colleague, a friend, your spouse. How does it sound to you? And I, these are the questions I want to ask. And what would you, so practice is one way. Um, the other is, and I know you're big in this, is breath work. Mm -hmm. 
I did some Wim Hof today. I felt amazing. You know, every one of us breathes, but we're not consciously conscious aware, consciously aware of it. You can use breath as an intentional way to ground and to de-stress and to let go. So people struggling with inauthentic, you know, conversations, just practice. It's, it's a habit. Just breathe. Don't take it so seriously. Be grateful for all the things you have in your life. And then I, the other th component I would also do from a mindset is I would suspend disbelief or pretend I'm not a sales rep for this company. I literally will close my eyes and I'll pretend I'm an employee of my customer. And I imagine getting the badge, wearing the badge, showing up for work, and I'm in that role and brand new to the company. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I need to, what am I worried about? in my role? How do I need to look good in front of my boss? What is my CEO saying about the company? What's the product roadmap and strategic initiatives? And what competitors do I worry about? How's my stock price doing so I can make some money at this gig? You know, I really immersed myself mentally and put myself into their mindset purposefully. And I would sustain that mindset even while we're having conversations. So while, rather than thinking, oh, this feature is going to be perfect for this. They're going to buy this. Or because you said that, I can't wait to link it to this amazing feature. Like that rather than thinking about my stuff, I had to like, and this became a practice. It was not easy. It was not an easy thing. I had to purposely say to that inner voice in my head, shut up, sales guy, sit down. This is not your time. We'll talk later. This is about the customer. Um, so those are just some tips and tricks that I use to get more comfortable about being genuine and being open and listening more and developing more relationships and getting more information from more contacts that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is your formula. It's speed, it's efficiency, and it's who you're being. Mm -hmm. Like it's the energy that you show up with. Like you've executed that to a T and that's why you've been able to like you're well known for being able to build strong relationships with executives. Um, that was something that I frankly struggled with. I actually had my managers at one point recommend me to take an executive engagement course because it was something that I was I was struggling with. I would get into to rooms with execs. I would feel this like big sense of nervousness because I was talking to somebody on this you know this pedestal that I was putting them on, um, and you know, I was, I was like struggling, like, okay, I got, I got to relate to this person. Like I got to find something to personalize and say and build rapport. And, um, now I got to, you know, ask questions about their top priorities. So help, help, help us navigate the confusion, Mike, for a lot of sales folks. Um, you know, they, they're getting in a room with executives, some who are much older than them, right. In some cases, what should be the, the playbook for an executive meeting? How should, should one, approach that meeting and what should they be looking to get out of it when they've got an executive in the room? Yeah, I love executive meetings. No, oh, I love them. And I, you know, I managed a Dagestan advisory board for a couple of years. We had 254 executives in our advisory board. So it was a huge advisory board mm. and I ran our offsite advisory board events. Um, and part of the big deal team was to make those executive connections. And so the playbook is 
prepare like crazy. First off, you have to believe, you have to believe that you have something that's valuable, that you are valuable. You have to believe that you can help this executive with something that they're struggling with. And you have to believe that you're worthy in, in, of, of, the, of the meeting and, and you, you don't have to do it alone. And so bring somebody in of a higher level title. That's kind of like the crutch. It's an important one though. You have to have someone else. And as a seller, I'm just there to kind of orchestrate the meeting. So the first thing I do is always have the customer talk first. Executives love to talk about themselves and their company and what they're doing. I mean, people in general love to talk about themselves. They're concerned about that. So I found when I have the executive on the customer side talk, that would give me a little bit of breathing room where I don't have to like run the pitch or the demo or position. I could kind of coast a little bit and just listen. And they'll say, well, here's what we're doing in this strategy and we're expanding globally and we're looking at an M&A and, you know, and I just would listen to them. And then I'd say, well, here's, and I'd share a little information. I read this the other day. That's this related to what you were talking about. So I found opportunities to demonstrate that we've done our homework and, you know, we uh, care about the partnership. And then I let the executives talk. Most of the time, it's the executives talking to each other. And, you know, what I found is they're just normal people. They're just regular people. So rather than focusing on the script or the pitch or the demo, it's back to people relationship management 101. Bob, how are you? Great to meet you. I bet you're busy these days. Wow, I read about that in recent acquisition. How's that going? Boom. Let the person talk. That's interesting, Bob. Uh, you know, in your last report, you said these three things in particular, looking at growth from this market. Where does that fit on your priority list? Oh, okay, great. So a few kind of prompting questions, but the focus is on the customer. So the three things of executives belief. The second thing is preparation. And the third is leverage. So your the, the leverage is you're leveraging your own internal executives. You're, learn, you're leveraging an executive outside your company, but has a relationship with this target executive. You're, you're leveraging an investor who maybe has invested in this. So bottom line is you're leveraging other people that have stronger relationships than you have it, and you're riding along, you're drafting along in their relationships. So belief, research, and leverage, and just listening. Yeah. Executives are human too. <laughs> I think that that was like the biggest realization for me. It's like, if I just talk to this person, like they're a human and not like on this big platform or stage or anything, like there's something that we can relate about. You know, there's something that we can talk about. There's something that we can learn from each other. And if we put people on a pedestal, whether they're a celebrity or they're a, or an executive, we put these people on a pedestal. What it, what, what the root cause of that is, it's our ego. We think that, oh, this is important. They're better than, they're higher up than. We're all the same spirit inside these meat suits that we're wearing. We're all just spirits. 
And, you know, nobody's better than or worse than anybody. We're all doing our best. So, you know, there really is a common thread, no matter what your title is. None of that matters. That's all ego stuff. And I also found if I put someone on a pedestal, it means they're doing, they're demonstrating something that I haven't owned inside of me. If I have a positive reaction or a negative reaction to somebody, then there's a projection element to it. And it means I'm not owning something inside of me. So it always comes back to my own personal work. There's a lot of personal work that I think this is something that I'm realizing. Like I speak to dozens of, of reps on a week to week basis and, you know, reps are going through stress, they're going through anxiety, they're having a hard time understanding, like they're very confused, overwhelmed about how do I go about hitting my number this year? The market's tougher than ever before. CFOs are, um, you know, going through everything with a fine tooth comb. It's harder to book meetings with prospects than ever before. So they're going through a number of challenges and not to mention the pressure that they're facing from senior management internally. What advice would you give to a rep who's feeling like that right now, whether it's personal work or sales related, like what would you say to that person? I would say have some fun in your life. (laughs) Have fun, treat it like a sport and a game. And some of the most exciting games were the toughest ones to win. And some of the most rewarding games were the ones where maybe lost really badly or it was a tough loss, but I learned grit, determination. Like it's a game. I think we put way too much focus on these external things and come back to the basics. Your reality is even when a seller's having a tough time, they're like 1% of the world. They're in this 1% category of the in the entire planet, most people barely can afford to eat. So just reframe how good you have it. You are in a very unique position. Let's have fun. And if it was always good, if it was always easy, it would be boring. We're signing up for life. When we when you sign up for a rafting trip, they say, do you want the class one, two, three, or four rapids? Or do you want the extreme? You know, I like to pick not the extreme, maybe one less than that. I like to like get excited and maybe bumped and bruised a little bit. And that thrill of the challenge is what is exciting and what's fun. So then why do we go in sales and we think, well, gosh, it should be just this lazy river (laughs) ride. It's not what you want. You don't want to just sit back and and float down to money land. It sounds good at the surface, but at a spiritual level, because we are unlimited beings, we're infinite beings. No, we don't die. We just transform. Can't kill us, hurt us, burn us, nothing. So why would we want the lazy river ride? We're signing up for the class four rapids and we're in it right now. And it's easy to be like, oh my God, I'm bleeding. And I'm like, my knee got on the rock, it's bleeding. I banged my head a little bit. I'm fine, but man, this is really, I'm getting jostled around because you're going to get through this on the other side. It's not going to be a class four rapids forever. And you're going to look back and there'll be moments in the class four rapid. There'll be moments where you're like, I'm going to die. Like, why did I do this? Why did I sign up for this? 
you know, river. <laughs> I want my money back. I, I this is too much to handle. And then you get it and you're in that kind of calm floating period. And you look back and you're like, that was awesome. That was amazing. I love that. So, you know, we're in a rapids and it's fun. So just have fun. Remember you have it better off than most of the world. Um, and the other thing is don't, I talked to a lot of people that are making more money than they ever have that are creating fabulous businesses and helping people do things. There's more opportunity than people think. I think there's an easy uh, downward spiral around limiting beliefs. I don't get leads. I won't get opportunities. I don't get opportunities. I don't close. If I don't close, I don't hit my number. If I don't hit my number, I'm going to get fired. And it's this endless loop. And you know, you can take the, you can take the tape out of the head, put a different one in and say, you know, there's unlimited opportunities, unlimited potential. There's a new way of working. I haven't figured out yet. And also what do I want in my life? Is this even worth it? Does it resonate with my why? So I think a lot of people are getting clear on like their purpose in life and um, doing meaningful things. And, you know, this too shall pass. It really will. I feel like salespeople in particular go through a lot of that negative self-talk, like those, those limiting beliefs that like, oh, I'm not good in front of an executives or I suck at prospecting or I don't know how to sell big deals or, you know, like these, these things that build and, and, and sort of end up building up pressure in a vacuum um, due to all the external pressures as well, right? Like being far away from quota and whatever you might hear for internally, externally, like facing rejections from prospects or, you know, uh, I know I, I've heard you give an example once of like, you're at the top, you're with an executive, you're about to close a deal, you get sent back down to procurement and they tell you to knock half the price off. Like, and now you're, you're like, well, what am I going to do? And, and again, the self-talk starts to, starts to build on itself. How can you overcome some of these over limiting beliefs and, and this negative self-talk? How do you go about addressing that? So back to the subconscious mind, you, the subconscious mind is reactive. It's autonomic, automatic, reflexive. You can't control the subconscious mind. It, it, it's reactive. And so if it's reacting with this negative stuff, you just have to be aware that it's okay. I'm, I'm experiencing a negative reaction right now, and I'm aware that it's leading to these thoughts. So as simple as that is, that's profound is awareness. Most of the time we're trapped in our head. We don't even know what we're thinking. And it's, and it goes into all these different tangents. So call a timeout, timeout, take three deep breaths. You take another one. And then you take one more. It's a breath timeout. All right, now I'm much more centered and grounded. What am I thinking right now? I'm in a worry rat hole. And I do, I feel this way too every day. This is something I do every day, constantly through the day. So you don't ever am done with it. I've I've crossed that off my list. I'm no longer a warrior. It never ends. And so what you do is just this practice of letting go. I'm aware of it. I'm ready to let go now. Thank you. I'm aware of it. 
I'm letting go of it. Thank you very much. Give yourself love and gratitude and you just, I'm letting it go. I'm letting it go. And I say it over and over and over while I take deep breaths. I take deep breaths. And then rather than feeling stress, anxious, and all these other emotions, what would you choose? That's when you can use your conscious mind. That's when you can use the neocortex and say, all right, my subconscious mind is reacting with stress, guilt, shame, judgment, worry. That's what's happening. But consciously, I'd rather choose confidence, abundance, gratitude, this feeling of accomplishment, recognition. Okay, run that through the motions. What does that see? How do you see that look? What does that look like? How does that feel in your body when you are feeling that way? What is that voice saying to you in your mind as it's doing that way? And, and through this process of repetition of awareness, breath, letting go, shifting it to what you do want, what I've noticed is that the subconscious mind reacts less. And when it does react, it's not as powerful or potent. And when it does react, I can catch it more quickly. My awareness, my ability to be aware of that is much quicker. I could kind of catch it. So then my peace state gets longer and longer and longer as I continue to practice that. I love this theme of awareness because that's really where it all starts, isn't it? It's like being aware, then noticing like, okay, you can make a change and then taking the actions required to make that change. And I always say like, for me personally, I actually don't love sales, like sales in a silo itself, not a big fan. What I love about sales is what it, who it forces me to become in the process, how it forces me to grow and That's develop. That's deep, man. That's deep. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's really is one of those, it's one of the only professions I can think of in the world where Number yeah. one, the quality of your income is t- tied to the, the quality of work that you put in on a day-to-day basis, but where it really challenges you, almost like being a corporate athlete, it challenges you to add things to your skill set, to your mindset, to your habits, to the way that you show up on a day-to-day basis. And that's why, as much as I don't love the thing itself, I also believe it's one of the best careers in the world because of of all those reasons. And um, you've certainly, it's the same reason why I decided to be an entrepreneur. And for the first time after being an employee for 25 years, I, you know, my father, he passed away a couple years ago. Um, he lived a good life. He was 87. Um, but then on his deathbed, I, I, I started thinking, you know, wh- what regrets did he have and what regrets would I have? And, you know, be like, Hey, you didn't, you didn't start your own business. That was like one of the top. And the reason why not so much for the economic return on that investment or the prize of a liquidity event an acquisition or cash flow, not so much there. I knew it was, it would be a forcing function around personal development and I would grow in ways I just could not grow being an employee and getting that morphine drip every two weeks into my bank account and numb me just enough with me with status quo. So I'm with you, an entrepreneur, sales is an entrepreneurial role. We're all the CEOs of our territory. We have the flexibility to create our schedule how we want. And um, you're right, you gotta grow like crazy. And the only way you're growing is if you're uncomfortable. 
Growth only happens when you're uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, then that means you're stagnating. And when you're stagnating, you're then declining. You're either growing or you're stagnating. So now I get excited. I'm like, I'm really uncomfortable. I haven't done a lot of these things before. I'm excited, even though it hurts and I'm stressed and I'm worried and all of that stuff. My higher self knows this is what growth feels like. So if you're having a tough time, you're not hitting your number, you're not getting in. If you're uncomfortable, congratulations, you've just signed up for hyper growth at a, on a personal level, which will have a 10 or a thousand or a million or infinite return in the future. I'm so happy our paths have crossed, Mike. You, you're, you're an amazing human being. You're an awesome and talented seller. Uh, and I'm just really happy that you're on, you're on the team, you're on our team now. Um, <laughs> For, for my listeners, you know, I'll include Mike's LinkedIn in the show notes. Be sure to check him out, check his profile out. Um, and if you want to work with Mike, if you want to get coaching with Mike, head to untappyoursalespotential.com. You can book a call with me and uh, you'll get to have some of these deep conversations with Mike yourself. Um, but before we go, Mike, what is one last piece of advice you'd give to my listeners to help them achieve their next big win? Big wins is a run to the big top of the mountain. All big deals are a run to the top of the mountain. So get your climbing shoes and find your Sherpas and climb that mountain. And it's going to be cold. It's going to, you're going to probably get some crazy weather. You may have to camp out a few, a few different elevations, but climb it, get to the top of all of your big accounts and just be maniacally focused on some way to get not the level you're comfortable with and not their boss and not their, their boss go all the way up and imagine getting a meeting with the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway or, you know, some uh, Walmart biggest company. Imagine dare to dream and get top. I'd say that's the one, the one piece of advice that could have the big, it did for me. Once I just became very comfortable with getting meetings and having those meetings, which took time through repetition and getting help, my income changed dramatically. That's gold right there. Thanks for coming on to Winning Streaks, Mike. This has been awesome. Appreciate you. All right, Tanvir. Very good. Thank you, sir. Great to connect with you.